No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, a producer from HBO's Hard Knocks explains how they get NFL teams to buy into the show. Getting uh, big-name people like Antonio Brown or, or Derek Carr or certainly Coach Gruden on board is really assuring them that we're not asking you to work. You just do what you normally do. This isn't a, an additional responsibility at a time of year when you have plenty. And an advocate goes to bat for former Yankees catcher Thurman Munson, who he says belongs in the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's been 40 years since Thurman passed, and baseball has changed the way it evaluates players. What we've done is we've taken another look at Thurman's career, and through the uh, modern lens of baseball analytics plus comparative analysis, his career really does stand out. Plus, a Major League Baseball groundskeeper discusses how he got into the profession. I love being outside. Science was a subject I enjoyed in school. I grew up taking care of people's lawns, and I love baseball. So I thought someone had to be a Major League groundskeeper. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Coming up later in the show, I'll be speaking with someone who is hoping to see Thurman Munson, the Yankees catcher who died 40 years ago this week in a plane crash enshrined in Cooperstown. But first, we're joined by our own Sam Borden, who's been spending time with Christian Polisic, the 20-year-old wonder boy of American men's soccer, who is now joining the English Premier League team Chelsea. There's a story coming up Sunday morning on E60 and a story as well at ESPN.com. Sam Borden joins us now. Sam, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jeremy. Nice to be with you. Thank you for joining us. You spent a lot of time with Christian Pulisic, and uh, the last time most mainstream American sports fans were paying any attention to the men's national team, uh, they were being humiliated, if that's the right word, by Trinidad and Tobago in 2017, which prevented them from playing in the World Cup in Russia in 2018. So we haven't heard uh, much about Pulisic other than the fact that he was transfer- transferred from uh, Germany to Chelsea for $73 million in January. He's about to suit up soon for Chelsea for the first time. When, when do we first see him actually play for Chelsea? Uh, well, first of all, let me say that I think humiliated is absolutely the right term for how we saw uh, Christian Pulisic and the U.S. national team last. Uh, that was a very rough finish to the end of World Cup qualifying. I think it was, you know, a, a total nightmare, really, for both the, the Soccer Federation and fans here that they missed out on the World Cup. And it was a big deal for Christian. Uh, you know, there aren't that many opportunities for uh, American soccer players generally to really shine on the global stage, and the World Cup is one of those rare opportunities. That's what I think kind of makes Pulisic's story so interesting, is that by making this move to Chelsea, he is really sort of, he's doing what the rest of the soccer world does, which is make a big impact in the club career, which is different than what American players have done in the past. Uh, his first game is against Manchester United on um, August 11th, and from that point going forward, he is going to be in the spotlight every week. And that's not a spotlight that an American soccer player has ever had to deal with before. Do we expect to see Christian Pulisic 
regularly in Chelsea's first team lineup? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I would say so. You know, uh, he has started um, several of the preseason games they played. He scored two goals and drew a penalty kick um, against um, an Austrian team in an exhibition uh, earlier last week. And he's been featured. I mean, you know, Chelsea is dealing with a transfer ban. They're not allowed to sign any more new players for another year because they broke some rules in terms of the transfer market and this was their penalty. So there aren't any big names coming in. Pulisic is, you know, the, one of the big names that came in during this past uh, offseason. And he's going to be a big part of replacing uh, Eden Hazard, who left Chelsea, uh, went to Real Madrid, and really is one of the top ten players in the world. So there's a lot of pressure on Pulisic, and I think he's going to be put right into the fire. We've never seen, despite the fact that tens of millions of American kids have been playing soccer in the last half century, and we've developed guys like... Harks and Reyna and Ramos and Donovan and Beasley. So there's never been an international star outfield player who's come from the United States. Christian Pulisic comes from a soccer background. His parents both played college ball. His father was a soccer, um, uh, I guess he was a coach in the indoor league. Uh, he, he's been overseas for a long time. What's going to make Christian Pulisic different than literally any male player ever before from the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you said it quite well. I think there's no doubt there have been successful players from America in the past, and I don't want to denigrate how good a player like Tim Howard was. I mean, he played for Manchester United for a while. He played for Everton for a while. He's, you know, probably the best goalkeeper that we've had in U.S. soccer history, and he succeeded in that Premier League for a long time. But it is different when you are the guy in the middle of the field, you're the guy with the ball, you're the guy who is expected to create goals and score goals as well. I think the, the thing that I keep coming back to with Pulisic is that he came up in Europe. He went to Borussia Dortmund, which is a team that's known for developing young players. You know, as their youth director said to me when I was over there interviewing him, we don't buy stars, we make stars. And that is exactly what Dortmund is known for, and that's exactly what Pulisic went through. You know, he came of age in the Dortmund Academy, and I think to be able to come through that and now come out the other side and still be able to handle the pressure, be able to have grown your game to the point that a team like Chelsea wants to give you, uh, you know, a big salary and pay $73 million to get you, I think that differentiates him pretty significantly from guys like Donovan or Dempsey, who did have some success in England, but developed more in America. When Donovan went to Germany, he didn't have nearly the success that uh, Pulisic had with Dortmund. Not even close. Again, we're speaking with Sam Borden about Christian Pulisic, who is the the hope for American men's soccer. Uh, he is expected uh, by many, many people already consider him one of the greatest players um, the country has ever produced. Um, in terms of what he can do, to bring attention to the men's national team, the way that he could be marketed. I mean, if he ends up being a a good player for Chelsea, one of the four or five most popular teams on the planet, what does that mean for American soccer? Yeah, I mean, that's that's an important question to consider as well. I think that obviously, you know, the experiences that, that he's had with the national team so far have not gone as well as he would like. You know, missing out on World Cup qualifying, that was, you know, perhaps the biggest blow. Uh, losing in the Gold Cup final this past summer, another disappointment. Um, so I think that 
Pulisic has yet to sort of make the impact on the national team that he would like. But as you said, I mean, he's got a long way to go. When we interviewed Landon Donovan, he said, this is the guy. I mean, for the next 10 years, he's the most important player for the national team. And I agree with that. I think there's no question about that. There are a lot of other young players that are on the rise. There's some really interesting guys. You know, Weston McKinney is doing great in Germany. Uh, you know, John Brooks, we've already seen, is a defender. He's making an impact in Germany as well. You know, there are a lot of guys that are on the rise, and Pulisic is sort of at the top of that list. I think you're going to see a real changeover in the national team. I think it'll start this, uh, you know, this fall when they're trying to qualify for next summer's Olympics. And then we're right back into World Cup qualifying for the next, uh, the, ne- the next go-around. So, I, you know, there is a little bit of a lull um, for the next few months, certainly when the focus will be on the club career. But then I wouldn't be surprised to see Pulisic try to help the team qualify for the Olympics and if they get there, to play. I think, you know, he's looking to make an impact on the national team. He hasn't done that yet, but it's something that is very important to him. Sam Borden on Christian Pulisic. His piece can be found at ESPN.com and also Sunday morning on E60, 9 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, a fascinating look at the man uh, everybody is counting on in uh, on the USMNT to carry it for the next several years. Sam, thanks so much for having joined us. Thanks, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Since 2001, football fans in particular have been mesmerized by the HBO and NFL Films production Hard Knocks. It debuts its 14th season Tuesday night at 10 o'clock Eastern Time. I'm sure it's also 10 o'clock Pacific Time, and we are pleased to be joined by the lead producer on the show, the showrunner, Ken Rogers. Ken, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Ken, what makes Hard Knocks special? We've always felt uh, that it's almost been a reversal at NFL Films of what our original legacy was. Um, in the in the 70s, uh, Stephen Ed Sable, who founded the company and, and really created a lot of what modern sports television is, took regular people who happened to be football players and made them into mythic heroes. You know, they put the orchestral music. They had the slow motion, awesome photography. You know, they put microphones on them so that we could hear, who, you know, these battle cries. And I think Hard Knocks is uh, part of a reversal of that in that now everyone has access to the the heroic nature of players and and it's become even bigger of a of a sport of fandom uh, of glorification of athletes of 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 um you know making heroes out of them our attempt on hard knocks is really to humanize them and say okay that's all well and good but at the end of the day especially the young rookies and undrafted guys who come to camp these are kids trying to get a job, to keep a job, to do well at a job, to impress their boss, to put food on the table for their family. And they're not all dissimilar to the rest of us who are trying to do the same thing. I mean, everyone can remember when they came out of college and had their first job and how that felt. And maybe they get their first house or their first boss is yelling at them. That's what uh, really drives this show is that sense of welcome to the real world. Um, And it's very empathetic. And and you start to realize they're not players 
on your fantasy football roster. They're not just the names on the back of their jersey. They're they're really just like us, and uh, they go through the same challenges. Well, no one yells in television, of course. Uh, that would never happen. Uh, we're speaking with Ken Rogers. He is the lead producer for Hard Knocks, which is back Tuesday night on HBO. It's 14th season in the last, I guess it's 19 years. Um, and, of course, it's, it's the Oakland Raiders this year. Um meaning everyone's expecting the John Gruden show. But before we get to Gruden and the Raiders, in all your years working on the show, and um, you've been there for a while, who do you consider the greatest character of them all? You know, as soon as you said, in all your years on the show, I already had my answer because no matter what you were asking, it was going to be Rex Ryan. Uh, I mean... <laughs> That's the answer, um, right. and it really is because of his uh, his really, I guess, his role in the history of the show was at a time when the show um, was crossing over not just from uh, you know a TV show, but to be part of the NFL calendar, to be something that fans looked forward to, regardless of what team they were fans of as a way to mark the beginning of the season um, and the theme music. And, uh, you know, I remember that year with, with Rex, we were an answer on jeopardy and uh, we were being spoofed on John Stewart. And uh, it was an amazing thing to cross over into popular culture, uh, especially here at NFL films where, uh, you know, we, we feel kind of, I don't know, isolated, and we just do our work, and and we love making football movies, and and we're not really part of Hollywood. To all of a sudden, you're an answer on Jeopardy, and it was because of Rex. I mean, the year before we had Chad Johnson, who ranks very high up there in character uh, rankings. But, yeah, still does. Yeah, I mean, his child please was one of those you know great lightning rods for the show, and <laughs> um, but Rex, I, maybe it was the market, maybe it was his his um, larger-than-life personality, uh, and I think a great part of it was just his willingness to to be who he was. It's really what we always tell everyone, and, and most everyone gets, which is just be yourself, and you'll come off genuine. You don't have to act for the cameras. That's not what this is about. We're not Hollywood. We're just a documentary film crew who's shooting what's actually happening. Rex was so comfortable with who he was. Uh, and had no filter and st- and really does the same thing in his personal life. So it's not like he was purposely trying to be outlandish. Um, it, it was just a, a perfect storm of where the show was in its history, the market, the person. He cro- He really crossed us over into now. We hear from people in Hollywood all the time that say uh, a regular phrase in Hollywood pitch meetings is, hey, here's my idea. It's hard knocks, but with blank, dot, dot, dot. It's just sort of become shorthand for a type of television show, and that's that has a lot to do with Rex and, and crossing over not just from a TV show but into part of pop culture. The elevator pitch, the sincerest form of flattery, uh, making the comparison to hard knocks. <laughs> We're speaking with Ken Rogers, who's the lead producer on Hard Knocks, back again Tuesday night on HBO. And, you know, in, in Gruden and the Raiders and Antonio Brown and Derek Carr, and, and we could go on. I mean, this seems to be um, – <sighs> 
you know, a, a match made in heaven between the Raiders and and Hard Knocks. How, how do you have to approach this uh, in the sense that Gruden's already a kind of star and and he's already somebody that people parody and and um, uh, caricaturize? That's right, and and so the tact um, was sort of opposite, right? It was we don't want you to be a television star. You're going to be great just being yourself. And that's, that's sort of the, um, the trap of someone with so much personality like coach Gruden is if they're, you know, at a press conference, if they're reading the phone book, they're going to do it with just some sort of personality that you say, man, this guy's a star. (laughs) Um, So it was really making sure he knew you don't have to do anything. You don't have to read a prompter. You don't. We're not going to ask you to do anything other than what you would be doing if we weren't here. Only we're going to be filming it. So that's really what Hard Knocks is all about. Is is we don't decide who's rooming with who. We don't decide uh, you know what drills they do. Who gets reps? Uh, who, uh, certainly, who makes the team or anything like that. We're just silently standing by watching. So. Getting uh, big-name people like Antonio Brown or, or Derek Carr or certainly Coach Gruden on board is really assuring them that it's that we're not asking you to work. Well, you just do what you do. You do, do what you normally do. This isn't a, an additional responsibility at, at a time of year when you have plenty. Um, and that, that really has worked over the years and allowed people – you know, from Coach Bill O'Brien and in the Texans, uh, you know, all the way back to to Coach Billick and Ray Lewis and Shannon Sharp and Goose back in '01, uh, to just be themselves. We've been speaking with Ken Rogers. He is the executive producer, the showrunner for Hard Knocks, which is back on HBO Tuesday night at 10 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, everyone very excited to see uh, our old colleague John Gruden starring on the show, back coaching the Raiders. Ken, thanks so much for having joined us. I hope you enjoy the show and that we can live up to its reputation. Thanks so much. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Forty years ago, on August 2nd, New York Yankees catcher Thurman Munson, who'd been the MVP of the American League in 1976 and one of the most respected and accomplished players in Major League Baseball throughout the decade of the 1970s, died in a plane crash. He was piloting his own plane. He was going home to Canton, Ohio, and he died at the age of 32. Forty years later, there is a movement afoot to see Munson elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. He's never received very much support. The most support he ever received was in the first year he was on the ballot for the 1981 induction, and he only received about 15% of the vote from the Baseball Writers Association members who were eligible to vote. Larry Schnapp is leading the charge, hoping to see Munson recognized and enshrined in Cooperstown, and Mr. Schnapp joins us now. Larry, thank you for being with us. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. I got to tell you, Larry, um, I remember August 2nd, 1979 vividly. I was, uh, at the time, uh, um, nine years old. I was a maniacal Yankees fan. And like so many people, um, I guess especially young people that time, I, I, I was devastated by the news. We'll never forget that day. Can't believe it's been 40 years. And... 
you have now uh, you're you're an attorney, um, but you have dedicated yourself to seeing Munson recognized by the Hall of Fame. He hasn't gotten, as I said, very much support. What? Why do you think Thurman Munson deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? Well, um, I can't uh, speak as to you know why he didn't get more votes than he did during his uh, 15 years that he was eligible for the baseball writers. Um, uh, selection, um, although he was one of the few players that stayed on for all full 15 years, which is in itself an accomplishment. Um, but uh, it's been 40 years since Thurman passed, and uh, baseball has changed the way it evaluates players. And um, what we've done is we've taken another look at Thurman's career. And through the uh, modern lens of baseball analytics plus comparative analysis, um, his career really does stand out. Um, you know, first of all, it, this is an unknown fact for many people, but he's the only person wearing pinstripes that won both the MVP and the Rookie of the Year award. Think of all the great players that the Yankees have had over the years. And, and it's just astounding that he's the only one that has accomplished that. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up, Mickey Mantle was my hero. And Munson was my uh, hero as a younger adult. Um, but Munson meant as much to those 1970s Yankees, I think, as Mantle did to the 50s and 60s Yankees in terms of leadership and the way he performed. Um, when you start looking at Munson's career, he played. So the conventional wisdom has been that he didn't play long enough and that the time he did play wasn't good enough. But when you look at his career through the modern analytics and also just kind of refining the traditional stats, um, his career, you know, his career really does compare very favorably with Johnny Bench and and Carlton Fisk. In fact, what we've done is we have a, a video that we did um, as part of this initiative where we compare uh, Thurman Munson's ten years, uh, the seventy to seventy nine, with both Fisk and, and Bench, and he he actually. Um, outperforms them in many categories. And of course, Thurman Munson, we're speaking with Larry Schnapp, who is leading the charge, hoping to see Thurman Munson, who died 40 years ago on August 2nd in a plane crash uh, at the Canton-Akron Airport, inducted into the Hall of Fame. And uh, you know, Munson in his time was considered terrific. He won three gold gloves. He was a seven-time All-Star in his 10 full seasons. He was always somewhere in the MVP balloting. As you mentioned, he was a Rookie of the Year, and he was also a right-handed hitter uh, in a park in which it was very difficult for right-handed hitters to perform. That's true. Um, and when you start looking, you know, he's the first catcher to have consecutive four seasons with 180 hits or more. He was the first of uh, he's one of three American League catchers that had seven consecutive seasons of 130 hits. He uh, had uh, three 300, 100 RBI seasons. Um, and, of course, um, his postseason stats were unbelievable. I mean, he had 357. Um, he, hit, he actually hit safely in 27 of his 30 postseason games. He hit safely in 10 consecutive World Series games and seven consecutive hits in the World Series. Larry, I'm uh I'm looking at uh his page on baseballreference.com and I got to say I'm surprised. I haven't really looked at it in a while. You know, the Hall of Fame monitor, which is a way that they measure likelihood of being a Hall of Famer. 
he's he's up there pretty high. A likely Hall of Famer has 100 points. He's got 90 points, and that's a career cut short. He died at the age of 32. Now, you could, um, I guess, you could make the case that Munson was already in decline uh, as as a hitter. He was not the same player in 19. 19- 78 and 79 that he had been in 76 and 77 but you would expect that with all the games that he had caught but but as you said with modern metrics and the way that we look at things like wins above replacement and so forth Munson looks better than ever before but but what is the process by which you could actually get him in the hall now so there's been Yankee fans you know for years that have been advocating for him. There's been a couple of excellent articles written um, by Jay Jaffe and others. Um, Brian Kenny did something a couple years ago on on his program. But what hasn't been happening has been an organized effort to try to, you know, mobilize the support. So the first step to get him into the Hall of Fame, uh, you know, the Hall of Fame has revised the way that it, um, the old timers or veterans committees, um, select players. So the way it is now is the there are four different errors uh, of baseball players. So the and the error that's currently going to be considered this year is called the modern baseball error, which is from 1970 to 1987. So there is this historical overview committee that meets over the summer this this summer, and they will select ten players to be placed on the ballot. And then, uh, so that's step number one. The step number one is have to, we have to get him on the ballot. And so to do that, we're, you know, we've got a website. We have, we're compiling data. Uh, we have a petition that we um, now passed that we were going to, the, the, the model was 15,000 signatures for number 15. So we have 15,500 so far. We have a big weekend coming up. Uh, we're going to be, we call ourselves Thurman's Army. So we're showing up uh, tomorrow and Saturday. Um, we have Thurman Munson T-shirts, Hall of Fame T-shirts. Uh, we'll be sitting in the stands. There's a memorial rally that's going to be held for him between the games. So we're trying to get attention to his, you know, to his case. So if we get him on the ballot, then the next step will be in December is for the old timers committee um, to then select the players that they, you know, they have to have a three quarters um, acceptance. So, for example, last year. I think it was Harold Baines and Lee Smith. Um, so that was the error of um, uh, today's game. So this this year is, is this. So when we saw that a combination of the error that Thurman played and the fact that it's 40 years this summer, it just seems like this was an opportune time to kind of really mobilize everybody. So um, you know, we we are hoping that the next step will be for the the first step is for the Hall of Fame Historical Overview Committee. Uh, to uh, put him on the ballot, and then if we get him on the ballot, then you know, then the next step would be at the winter meetings when the when the old timers committee gets together and votes on the names. Larry Schnapp wants to see Thurman Munson in the Baseball Hall of Fame forty years after he died in that tragic plane crash in Ohio. Larry, thank you for having joined us. Thank you very much, Jeremy. This is the Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. If you're a baseball fan, one of the true pleasures of the game is the actual physical beauty of the field. Dave Mellower, our next guest, is one of the best at making baseball fields as healthy 
and as beautiful as they can be. He is the head of groundskeeping and more at Fenway Park for the Boston Red Sox. He's written two books of horticulture, but his new book is a personal story. It's a story of overcoming post-traumatic stress disorder, and it is titled One Base at a Time, and it is a pleasure to welcome to the show Dave Mellor. Dave, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be on your show. Now, Dave, you, you've also been on E60. Uh, we did a story a few years ago, Buster Olney, about your remarkable personal story um, going back to 1981 when you were a star high school pitcher and you were hit by a car as a pedestrian, a freak accident to McDonald's parking lot. Uh, and, and that that changed your life, that moment on July 10th, 1981. Yes, sir. It turned out actually to be one of the luckiest days of my life. At the time, um, my dream was to make it to the majors as a player. My grandfather played in 1902 in the majors, and my dream was to follow in his footsteps and someday hopefully stand on Fenway Park's mound. And a month after I got out of high school, while walking into a McDonald's restaurant, a car came off the street, hit me, threw me 20 feet in the air, the car kept coming at a higher rate of speed and hit me a second time, pinning my knee against the wall. And I thought not only was my leg crushed, I thought my dreams were crushed. I didn't know what I would do with my life. And my family inspired me to not only not give up, but to find a career that I would love to do because they said so many people don't like their job. So I brainstormed to think about what I would love. I I loved being outside. Science was a subject I enjoyed in school. I grew up taking care of people's lawns, and I loved baseball. So I thought someone had to be a major league groundskeeper. And my brother lived in Milwaukee at the time and told me if I could get a job with the Brewers, I could live with him to save money. So that was 35 years ago. I reached out to the Brewers and kind of just broke them down with uh, many, many requests follow-up letters and phone calls, and they gave me an opportunity. When you get to Milwaukee and you're working, you eventually are working for the grounds crew there, it's almost unfathomable what happened then uh, one day at County Stadium. Yes, sir. In uh, October of 1995, we were uh, getting ready to resod the field. All the sod was off the uh, field, and we were, uh, I was out in left field raking around an irrigation head, And I I heard a car. I was certainly hyper aware of car noises. And I heard a car, and I thought, that is weird to hear a car inside the stadium. And I turned around, and I saw a car coming from behind the bleachers toward an open double field gate um, that was behind the left fielder. So I ran to the warning track and put my hands up to motion for the lady to stop. And she stepped on the gas and smiled as big as she could and came right at me and hit me. And I landed in a pile at the base of the outfield wall, and she made a full lap around the track speeding following the edge of the grass. And as she made the full lap around and saw me laying on the track, she veered toward me, and I thought, oh, my gosh, she's going to run me over again. And at the last minute, she swerved to miss me and slammed on the brakes and stopped right beside me sat up in her car and excessively waved at me and smiled and kept waving and then sat down, stepped on the gas and peeled out and covered me in track material. 
and went through the gate behind the bleachers. And my heart was racing in my throat. My ears were ringing. But as I gathered my thoughts, I, I could hear her screaming cuss words. And I pulled myself up against the wall pads and limped out behind the bleachers. And by this time, she was out of her car screaming at the guard to let her out. And I noticed her car was still running. And so I thought I should take the keys out before she hurt someone else. And as soon as I turned her car off, she came running over and got right in my face, screaming cuss words and spitting on me, telling me to give her her keys. And when I didn't, she got in the car and locked it, locked the car up. And shortly thereafter, the deputies arrived. And when I gave them the keys, they unlocked the door and she grabbed an ink pen and tried to stab them. And they put her in the car and turned out she had a past history with mental illness. In 1991, she had uh, stalked, been arrested for stalking Julio Iglesias. 1993, she was arrested on international charges, threatening the Queen of England, demanding to be adopted. And the night before she had uh, uh, driven on the field and hit me at county stadium she had assault tried to assault oprah in chicago but it had gotten away but oprah's security staff had gotten a picture of her and it turned out she had the same clothes on from the night before speaking with david mellower his new book is one base at a time how i survived ptsd and found my field of dreams and it's um it's almost uh impossible to believe that you could be figuratively struck by lightning twice like that hit by cars uh you know in a parking lot it makes a little more sense obviously than while you're doing your job inside county stadium how do you even begin uh to process uh, at that time in 1995 what had happened to you for a second time you know it it, it was uh it was a difficult time you know starting the first night in 81 I started having one to five vivid lifelike nightmares every night for 29 years. And I was scared to go to sleep. I, I knew as, as well as the sun was going to go to set that night, I was going to have a nightmare. It's just a question of how many. And I slept with the TV on so that when I screamed out at night, I could try to tell my roommates in college and when I was at home with my mom. And then when I got married, my wife and kids, it was the TV. And back then, I thought it was a sign of weakness to ask for help. So I kept all these raw, buried emotions and, and inside. And, and now I know it's a sign of strength to ask for help. And we want to bring awareness in the book to not only PTSD and how incredible and life-changing service dogs are, but let people know that it's not a sign of weakness to ask for help but that it's a sign of strength and it takes courage and it's nothing to be ashamed of. And that, you know, for all those years, I had no idea all these symptoms I had, what was causing it. And luckily, and on September 23rd, 2010, I, during an acupuncture treatment, I just happened to pick up a Smithsonian magazine that was amongst probably 50 different magazines I picked it up from during my treatment, and the first page I opened was about a new treatment facility uh, for veterans dealing with post-traumatic stress. And it listed 12 symptoms of post-traumatic stress, and 
as I started reading them, chills ran through me and tears started pouring down my face when I act, realized I either actively had or had dealt with 10 of those 12 symptoms. The only ones I did not have were suicide or drug use. And while it scared the heck out of me, it gave me hope that if I had PTSD and I went through counseling, that hopefully I could be a better dad and a better husband because as much as I tried to protect my family from my symptoms and my mood swings and my flashbacks, I knew there were times that I wasn't as good a dad and husband as I wanted to be. So after reading that article, I went home and told my wife everything that had been going on, and she knew something was up, but she just didn't know what. And we went to the hospital the next day and started, you know, I started intense counseling and Back then, I, I was embarrassed to say I was in counseling, but now I'm proud to say I'm a PTSD survivor and proud to say I'm in counseling. And Counseling's changed my world and my family's world for the better. Well, we've been speaking with Dave Mellor. His is a story of trauma and triumphing over it. His new book is One Base at a Time, How I Survived PTSD and Found My Field of Dreams. Dave, thank you so much for joining us here in The Sporting Life. Thank you so much for all of your support. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.